It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. On March 16th, 2005. Brenda Groen's neighbor walked into her typical suburban house hoping to find her son. They owed him some money for helping out around their house and they wanted to get it to him as soon as possible. This neighbor often went to visit the family and knew that he was always welcome in their home, but this time no one answered his knock and the house appeared to be much darker inside than usual. The family of five was almost always up and about. The neighbor also noticed that all of their cars were in the driveway and each of them had open doors. Due to the suspicious circumstances, the neighbor called the police for a welfare check. When police arrived at the house, they entered the home and saw a truly horrifying scene. Some of the family were dead and others were missing. But what had happened in the house that night and who had done it? This is Monsters. Joseph Edward Duncan was born on February 25, 1963, in Fort Bragg, North Carolina. He was the fourth of five children. His parents were Joseph Edward Duncan and Lillian Duncan. Joseph had a busy family, and he often felt like having so many older sisters took away the attention he really wanted from his parents. He had three older sisters and one younger brother, but he didn't grow up in a typical American setting. While most kids are born and raised in one neighborhood with the chance to make friends with other kids they'll know for the rest of their lives, Joseph didn't have this opportunity. His father, Joseph Sr., was in the army and because of his job, the family changed locations almost every year. They moved around throughout multiple U.S. states and it caused Joseph to have a difficult time making friends as he was constantly moving. After the first few moves... He had pretty much given up on making new friends and spent most of his time occupying himself in or around wherever he was living at the time. His lack of socialization would begin to show consequences later in his teenage years. Joseph's mother, Lillian, was known as a domineering woman, said to be quite tough on her children, and Joseph said they didn't grow up on the best terms. He had made claims that he was abused as a child, but his younger brother disputes this. While the rest of his siblings grew up with fine relationships with their parents, Joseph claims he had a less than favorable childhood. It's not exactly clear what his life was like growing up, and whether or not his experience with his parents was as bad as he says. In 1979, Joseph's parents went through a divorce that affected him greatly. He stopped attending most of his classes at school and his antisocial tendencies worsened. Not long after, all three of his sisters moved out and left the household, leaving Joseph and his younger brother alone with his mother. As mentioned before, Joseph claimed his mother abused him, and if true, he was likely frustrated at being left alone with her when being with her felt so unsafe. 
Shortly after they separated, Joseph's father remarried and gave Joseph a stepfamily. It's difficult to tell if he made an effort to be involved in this family, though, and few reports speak about his relationship with his father after the divorce. At the time, Joseph was attending Lakes High School, and although he studied there for some years, he never graduated. He had poor attendance, and while he was at school, he focused on anything but his studies. Joseph had a reputation for bullying and harassing other students. He also had a lengthy criminal history, even from the time of being only a teenager, and both his life at school and at home were quite unusual. From his early high school years, Joseph showed an eerie infatuation with young boys and sometimes girls. He committed his first known sex crime at the age of only 15 when he raped a 9-year-old boy at gunpoint, traumatizing him for life. Joseph was arrested for the assault after it was brought to the attention of the authorities, but was released from jail after only a few months. The next year, he was arrested for driving a stolen car that he had taken from a neighbor in his small town. Joseph was sentenced as a juvenile and sent to Dislin's Boys Ranch. For a short time, he lived there as a halfway point between prison and the community. He was sent there to transform his behaviors before being allowed to live back at his mother's house and was also given probationary rules to follow in the meantime. While living in the boy's home, Joseph was set to meet a therapist on a recurring basis to talk through his issues and hopefully change his path. Most professionals involved in this case believed it was necessary for Joseph to go through some form of rehabilitation before being released from the boy's home since he was too unpredictable at that point. However, when he opened up to his therapist about binding and assaulting at least six boys by then, it was clear that there was a lengthier history than anyone had realized. He was released from Dislin's Boys Ranch after only a few months, which set him up again on a horrific path. Although Joseph met the therapist on a recurring basis, it would have gone against confidentiality laws for them to come forward about his past crimes. Hence, when he completed his mandatory therapy sessions, he was allowed to end his appointments and go back to his normal life. By the age of 16, Joseph had admitted to raping at least 13 boys as far as he could remember, although he admitted there may have been some more he had forgotten to count. You know, because raping someone's so easy to forget about. That same year, in 1980, he stole several guns and weapons from a neighbor living nearby. It was clear that his destructive tendencies had not gone away, and the therapy he faced just one year prior was not beneficial enough to end his criminal habits. Joseph was on a spree. Each time he was released from prison or the boys' home, his crimes would again pick up pace and he fell back into old patterns in almost no time. Once he was released again, he would abduct and rape a 14-year-old boy at gunpoint. It was becoming more and more evident that Joseph displayed a serious series of patterns and no intervention thus far had managed to break them. But this time due to the severity and frequency of the events, when he was arrested, he was sentenced to 20 years in prison. It finally seemed as if Joseph would be unable to continue with his crimes and that by the time he would be released, he would be much more grown up and hopefully out of this stage of his life. The problem is that being a sexual predator is not a stage. It becomes an impulsion that most sexual predators are not capable of stopping. Joseph was paroled in 1994, only 14 years after his sentencing. This time, he left and was allowed to live in a halfway home to begin his reintegration into society. 
His only condition was that he not engage with any minors, since his past crimes were mostly involving young boys and he seemed to have pedophilic tendencies. He then moved on to live other places around the Seattle area, moving from place to place as he seemingly got bored of one area. He started dating someone and began living with her for quite a while, but after he violated his parole once again, he was arrested only two years later. This time, it was for possession of cannabis and for having stolen firearms. Joseph was sent to prison for only one month and then was released on yet another parole with more restrictions. His criminal history was only getting lengthier and yet each time they let him out of prison. On May 31, 1997, Joseph violated his parole yet again by stealing his girlfriend's car and traveling abroad while he was supposed to be staying in the Seattle area. He was arrested on August 27th at his stepsister's house in Kansas City and returned to prison. Once again, he was released less than a year later on July 14th, 2000 for exhibiting good behavior while behind bars. Joseph then moved to Fargo, North Dakota, but his good behavior at the halfway house didn't keep up. On July 3rd, 2004, Joseph molested two young boys near Detroit Lakes. It's unknown if this event was planned or took place at random, but it did fall into his typical criminal pattern. He was arrested and charged in March of 2005 with both accounts of molestation. He was supposed to spend his time locked up awaiting trial, but a Fargo businessman who was a strong acquaintance of Joseph's helped him post his $15,000 bail, releasing him from custody on April 5th. Joseph was set free while awaiting his trial to begin, and of course, his behavior was no different this time. Before posting bail, though, it seems as if Joseph had made some travel plans. He wasted no time falling into his old patterns, as as soon as he was released, he took off on a plan that must have been in the works for months. Joseph made a series of stops at stores to acquire some equipment he had been meaning to get his hands on for a while. He started at a Walmart to buy both night vision goggles and a video camcorder. He then rented a red 2005 Jeep Grand Cherokee on April 15th and began his travels through the suburban parts of Missouri. For a while, it seemed as if he was traveling without a specific plan in mind based on where he went. He moved throughout plenty of different towns and neighborhoods while on his voyage. But after license plates were reported stolen on April 27th from another resident, Authorities realized that Joseph had no plans on returning the Jeep he had rented. The vehicle was reported stolen on May 24th, and authorities began attempting to track Joseph down to return the stolen car. On June 1st, a federal warrant was issued for his arrest when he refused to show up for court regarding the charges of the stolen car. With Joseph on the run with stolen plates in a stolen vehicle, investigators were looking for him but had no way of knowing where he had traveled. It had already been weeks since he had stolen the vehicle and he could have been almost anywhere in the country. In reality, Joseph had taken Interstate 90 either through South Dakota or Wyoming and was heading west to Idaho, which investigators were not able to discover soon enough. There he stopped over in the Wolf Lodge area, which is about 8 miles west of Coeur d'Alene, a small city in northern Idaho. For unspecified reasons that investigators have never truly been able to find out, it could have been a planned trip, or he could have just decided as he was on his way, but somehow, while on this joyride, he wound up in a neighborhood where he found a family that he seemed to take a particular liking to. 
Joseph had stumbled across the Groen family one day, with kids playing outside and happy parents taking care of the family in the house. Something about them interested him, so he decided to stay a little bit longer instead of continuing on his trip across the country. The Groen family consisted of 40-year-old Brenda, her 37-year-old boyfriend Mark McKenzie, and her three children, 13-year-old Slade, 9-year-old Dylan, and 8-year-old Shasta. All five of these family members lived in a small suburban house nearby local woods that was surrounded by a quiet neighborhood. When Joseph came across them, he became intrigued with the family and decided to spend some time nearby. He would often take his car to go scope out the family during the day, driving around different parts of the neighborhood. He would return multiple times after becoming increasingly interested in Dylan and Shasta, specifically. As we know, Joseph had a particular interest in young kids, and these two youngest members of the family are what convinced him to stick around. He would stay up at night and use his night vision goggles to watch the two children and the rest of the family in the dark inside their home. Joseph would stalk them for days before deciding what to do next. On May 15th, the family drove into the city to run some errands before returning home later that afternoon. They were supposed to go over to a friend's house to celebrate at a barbecue with some of their neighbors. But the barbecue ran late, and it was already dark outside when the family returned home. Slade, the oldest child, had already mowed that neighbor's lawn earlier that day, and they owed him a little bit of money for helping them out. They didn't have cash on them that day, but they promised to meet him in the morning and pay him for mowing the lawn. Slade often helped the neighbors with small tasks like this around the neighborhood, and he was comfortable letting them pay him the following morning. Most of the neighbors were friends with the Groen family, and they knew that their house was always a welcome place for them when they wanted to stop by. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The next day, May 16, 2005, the neighbor returned to the grown family home to hopefully find Slade and pay him. But when he knocked on the door, it appeared as if nobody was home, even at this time in the morning. The lights were off and there was no movement coming from inside the house, but he could hear the family dog barking. The neighbor thought it was strange knowing as usually one of the five family members was up and about at almost all times of the day. All of the family's cars were still parked in the driveway, but the neighbor noticed that all of the doors were open just slightly. It seemed strange to think that they hadn't locked their cars since, although they lived in a safe neighborhood, it wasn't like the family to leave something unattended like this. Out of suspicion, they called 911 to report the strange sightings and hopefully have the police come and investigate the home just to make sure the family was safe. At this point, it was just a simple wellness check to make sure that the family had made it home safe from the barbecue and check in to make sure they were doing okay. When police arrived, the situation would escalate quickly. Inside the house, they found two bodies in the kitchen. Brenda and Slade were both lying on the floor, covered in blood, with no vital signs to show they were alive. After further investigation, Mark's body was found in the living room in a very similar condition. 
All three victims were tied up and apparently bludgeoned to death, but the two younger children, Dylan and Shasta, were gone. If they weren't in the house, the neighbors or the police had no idea where they would be. Even after searching the rest of the house, Dylan and Shasta weren't found, complicating the crime even more. In an effort to preserve what was obviously a crime scene, local authorities sealed off the house and closed down the roads leading to it. There was a search effort launched locally for the two children, with neighbors and friends partaking to hopefully bring them home safe. Volunteers from the Kootenay County Search and Rescue were searching through the wooded areas surrounding the house and also the bigger city nearby, Coeur d'Alene. For the rest of the day, they searched the areas wondering if Dylan and Shasta had run out of the house when whatever happened took place. But when the initial investigation brought up no immediate results, investigators switched their plan to looking for a kidnapper, believing whoever committed the three murders had likely taken Dylan and Shasta with them. An Amber Alert was issued nationwide, hoping that if whoever had the children had managed to get far away already, they would get caught in the act before they could cross any borders that would make them even harder to find, if not impossible. The case was quiet for a few days, with no new leads surfacing and investigators unsure of what to do next. On the surface, neither Brenda nor Mark had any enemies that would have taken such drastic measures, and all the neighbors and immediate family members were cleared as suspects. It wasn't until May 18th that a person of interest from the case finally surfaced. Authorities identified 33-year-old Robert Roy Lutner, who people called Concrete Bob. Bob had quite a lengthy criminal record, and he was even believed to have visited the family on the day of the murder, just hours before they were all found dead or missing. According to some sources, Bob owed Brenda and Mark around $2,000 for unknown reasons, and he had come to tell them he still didn't have the money for them. But when Bob learned that authorities were looking for him, he turned away any suspicion by turning himself into the police almost immediately. Bob showed up at the local police station and spoke with the FBI and investigators, clearing his name from the search very quickly. He told investigators where he was that day, and after proving he could not have been at the house at the time of the murders, he was removed as a possible suspect. Although this was good news for Concrete Bob, there was still someone on the loose that was involved in the joint murder and kidnap. Shortly after, the suspect list was back down to zero, and the FBI joined the investigation to start combing the entire U.S. for clues since they had no idea where the two children had disappeared to. The kidnappings had turned into a national investigation that required much more force than local authorities. Investigators were offering a $100,000 reward for any information leading to the safe recovery of the two children, and they were really hoping that this would bring them home safe. Over the span of only a few days, this quickly became the largest criminal investigation in the history of Kootenay County, with insurmountable amounts of money and resources spent on trying to locate Dylan and Shasta. On May 19th, investigators finally received a tip that they hoped would begin to point them in the right direction. The owner of a sporting goods store in Bonners Ferry, Idaho, called in speaking about a man who was asking for directions to Libby, Montana on the day of the murder. According to the store owner, he drove a white van with Washington license plates, and he had two children with him who matched the descriptions of both Dylan and Shasta. The store owner also noted that while they were in the store together, it seemed as if nothing was wrong, and it didn't occur to him until after that that these may have been the children that he had seen on the news. After receiving the tip, 
All roads leading from Idaho to Montana were thoroughly searched and completely blocked off. But no van or other evidence was found to show police they were looking in the right place. At this point in the investigation, police were trying to think of possible motives that might lead them to their key suspect. Although they had originally found no enemies or hidden secrets of Brenda or Mark, they started to think of other reasons someone might have wanted to hurt their family. Reasons they had missed before. Their main motive to go off of at the moment was that a drug deal went wrong since Brendan and Mark were both found with cannabis and methamphetamines in their system during their autopsies. If Brenda and Mark were buying drugs from someone they potentially owed money to, it might lead investigators in the direction of who would have had a reason to attack the family that day. Local investigators also brought in a gang unit from Spokane, Washington to assist them with their interrogations, thinking this might be gang-related crime. But this motive didn't seem to fit anything and no new evidence came up. With no new information surfacing after they attempted to trace this lead, they were back to square one, with no idea who the culprit was. The police suddenly came into new information on July 2nd, after two men smoking outside a Denny's diner in Coeur d'Alene recognized Shasta from a billboard they had driven past earlier that day, they alerted the manager. The manager took a quick look at Joseph and Shasta, comparing it to the photos in the missing persons case and agreed they had found him. The manager immediately called 911, and patrons in the diner had positioned themselves surrounding all the exits, but just subtly enough that Joseph wouldn't suspect anything. If he tried to make an escape before the authorities arrived, they would be able to stop him. Joseph then got up and brought Shasta into the bathroom, and when he returned only minutes later, police were inside waiting for him. Shasta was rescued and brought to a nearby hospital for inspection as Joseph was apprehended. Shasta appeared to be in good health and was found with no major injuries. Police then moved on to the red Jeep found in the Denny's parking lot. Inside they found gloves, night vision goggles, a video camcorder, a 12-gauge shotgun, and a single shotgun shell. The only upsetting part of the discovery was that Dylan was nowhere to be found, even though his sister was still alive and well with Joseph when they were spotted. The local investigators had little hope of finding him alive, but pushed forward with the investigation, hoping they would solve this horrible case on a high note. They reached out to the public and asked for tips or information involving the stolen Jeep Grand Cherokee with Missouri license plate. This is when police uncovered that he had rented the car all the way out in Minnesota, but never returned it to the rental location. A new tip broke the ice when a gas station employee called in with more vital information. A woman from Kellogg, Idaho, which is about 40 miles east of Coeur d'Alene, recognized the stolen vehicle as one that had stopped at her station just hours before the arrest ultimately took place. She said she even believed that the little girl she saw him with was Shasta, but that it was only the two of them who she remembered seeing. Nothing seemed out of the ordinary about the pair, so she didn't think anything was off. She and one of her co-workers finally called the authorities after reviewing the security tapes and verifying that it actually was Joseph and Shasta in the station that day. Now, investigators knew where Joseph had traveled from and had a better idea of how long he had been without Dylan, helping them identify where they needed to continue looking for him. In order to continue on with the search, the police needed to speak to their main witness, Shasta. She was able to provide the most groundbreaking information once she was cleared from the hospital and able to speak to the FBI. 
Most of what investigators know about Dylan and Shasta's disappearance come from Shasta's own statement. This is her direct recollection of the events. On the day of her disappearance, Shasta was woken up by her mother frantically coming into her room and telling her to wake up. Shasta specifically remembered her mother telling her someone was in the house and then went to wake up and alert Dylan as well. Her mother told them both to go quietly and sit in the living room, where they found Joseph waiting with a gun and wearing black gloves, surrounded by the rest of their family members. In front of everyone, Joseph tied Shasta's mother up with nylon zip ties and then proceeded to do the same to her mother's boyfriend, Mark, and her oldest brother, Slade. Shasta and Dylan were both instructed to go outside and stay on the lawn, which they did due to Joseph's threats. Outside, both children could hear screams and thuds coming from inside but were too frightened to go inside or attempt to run away. Then, Shasta saw Slade wander out the front door injured and limping before Joseph came back outside and began beating him. Both parents were bludgeoned to death inside, but neither Dylan nor Shasta were present for it. Shasta saw Slade being dragged back into the house by Joseph and heard him slump onto the ground. Then, Joseph forced Shasta and Dylan into the back of his car and drove off, taking the children through a long drive on dark streets they couldn't recognize. After being taken from their home, Dylan and Shasta were moved to other locations where they were molested and tortured for weeks on end. Shasta could remember that they had driven a very long distance and stayed at two different campsites deep in the forest with little food and water for all of them. During this time, Joseph explained to her in depth that he had beaten and killed her family with a hammer, telling her she would never see them again. One day, while at one of the campsites Joseph kept them at, Shasta was sitting beside Joseph's car when she heard a bang come from the other side. She ran to where the sound came from and saw Dylan lying on the ground, screaming out in pain. She could see he was bleeding from his side, but she couldn't see why. Joseph was apparently looking for a beer in a tub of ice when his shotgun went off, shooting Dylan in the meantime. Shasta then saw Joseph walk over to Dylan, pull out his shotgun and pull the trigger, while aiming directly at his head, only the shotgun didn't fire. While Dylan begged Joseph not to kill him, Joseph reloaded the shotgun and shot him in the head, killing him instantly. Joseph immediately started crying, begging Shasta to believe that he didn't mean to kill him. While the first gunshot was just an accident, Joseph felt like he needed to put him out of his misery and ended Dylan's life out of sympathy. From here on, Shasta knew she would be alone with Joseph and she didn't know if that meant life or death for her. She watched her own brother die and then Joseph left to dispose of his body before he told her to get in the car and took her to their next spot. Only a couple days after watching her own brother be killed by her captor, Shasta faced her own horrendous situation. During a confusing situation where Joseph had no idea what to do with Shasta anymore, he gave her the option to choose her own way of death. He felt he couldn't keep her anymore and they were facing too many close calls that almost got him caught. Joseph told Shasta to choose either being strangled or shot. Shasta chose a gunshot, knowing it would be the faster, less painful way of dying. At this point, at eight years old, the girl had almost accepted that she was going to die. But suddenly, Joseph grabbed her from behind, putting a rope behind her neck and pulling it tighter and tighter. Shasta begged for him to stop, but he wouldn't budge. Joseph kept tightening the rope until Shasta said something that caught him off guard. She called him by his nickname, Jay, 
which he had told her and her brother about once or twice. This last-minute attempt worked, and Joseph loosened his grip, finally letting her take the gasp of air that saved her life. Joseph looked at Shasta in a way she had never seen him look at her before. With tears in her eyes, Joseph asked Shasta if she would like to go on a trip to meet his mother. Shasta agreed, believing she had no other option, and the two drove back towards Coeur d'Alene. On their way to meet Joseph's mother, they stopped at Denny's, the same Denny's diner where Shasta would finally be recognized and rescued. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Joseph was finally arrested for the kidnapping of 8-year-old Shasta and the murder of 9-year-old Dylan on July 2, 2005. He was also charged with the murders of Shasta's mother, her mother's boyfriend, and her oldest brother. For the next few days, the search party for Dylan continued, but Shasta had already come forward to explain the death of her own brother. On July 4th, investigators found human remains at a makeshift campsite located in the Lolo National Forest near Regis, Montana. The remains were collected as evidence and sent to the FBI lab in Quantico, Virginia to be tested for DNA or other identifying factors. The remains were positively identified as those of Dylan, confirming Shasta's recollection of his murder. Joseph was sent to trial for all four murders and the kidnapping of Shasta. During the investigation, it was discovered that Dylan was killed by a sawed-off shotgun at point-blank range. Although Joseph was now in prison awaiting trial, the investigation into his crimes didn't stop there. Investigators also found evidence linking Joseph to the murder of Anthony Martinez, a boy from California. On April 4, 1997, 10-year-old Anthony was playing with his friends in the front yard of his house as he usually did. When an unknown man approached the group, the kids thought nothing of him. Anthony and his friends lived in a relatively safe neighborhood and were not scared of being outside alone. The man asked them about his missing cat, hoping they could help him find it. But when the boys refused to help him search, the man grabbed Anthony at knife point and threw him into the back of his vehicle, with all of his friends as witnesses. After two weeks of non-stop searching by family, friends, and police, Anthony's body was found nude and partially decomposed in Indio, California on April 19th. Investigators noted that he had been sexually assaulted and bound with duct tape, but no key suspects were noted at the time. They continued the investigation and created a composite, hand-drawn sketch of what the perpetrator was assumed to look like based on the other witnesses' recollection, but no leads came through. Partial fingerprints were also taken from the duct tape found attached to Anthony's body, but without anything to compare them to, they led nowhere. Eventually, the case went cold. In July of 2005, online bloggers tied Joseph to the case of murdered Anthony. The composite sketch matched his appearance at the time, and the vehicle the perpetrator was driving in Anthony's case was also a match to a car that Joseph had owned. After finding this lead, the FBI and National Center for Missing and Exploited Children became involved once again and contacted the required local authorities. They were then able to match Joseph's fingerprints to those found in Anthony's case. 
Joseph finally confessed on video on July 19, 2005. He went as far as describing the crime as, quote, revenge against society for sending him back to jail for a probation violation. In August of 2005, Joseph admitted to other crimes that would catch the attention of investigators. On July 6, 1996, while on parole following one of his previous crimes, Joseph killed two girls from Seattle. Both sisters, 11-year-old Sammy Joe White and 9-year-old Carmen Cubius, disappeared after leaving the Crest Motel on Aurora Avenue North in Seattle to beg for food. About two years later, on February 10, 1998, the girls' remains were found by a passerby in an abandoned barn in Bothell. The King County Medical Examiner's Office declared that their death likely occurred soon after they went missing, meaning their remains had been hidden inside the barn for years. Joseph confessed to beating them both to death after finding them on the streets. Joseph was convicted in a total of three courts. He was charged by an Idaho district court for the kidnapping and murders of Brenda, Slade, and Mark, by the United States District Court for the kidnapping of Shasta and Dylan and the murder of Dylan, and by a California Superior Court for the kidnap and murder of Anthony. Joseph's first appearance at the Kootenay County Court in Idaho was on July 13, 2005. He was charged with three counts of first-degree murder and three counts of first-degree kidnapping in the case of Brenda, Slade, and Mark. County prosecutors had initially planned to charge him with the kidnappings of both Shasta and Dylan. However, these charges were deferred to the federal courts as he transported the children across state lines for the purpose of sexual exploitation. His trial in Kootenay County was set to begin on January 17, 2006, but it was delayed until April 4 after the district judge granted the defense's request to have more time to prepare for trial. The trial actually began in October, after the judge granted everybody additional time to prepare so that nobody would have to do the trial twice. Joseph's attorney specifically blamed the multiple postponements on the prosecutor's insistence on pursuing the death penalty and hence needing additional time to collect evidence. On October 16, 2006, just after the official jury selection began, prosecutors and Joseph's attorney reached a plea bargain where Joseph would plead guilty to all of the state charges being pressed against him. He was then immediately sentenced to three consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. However, the sentencing of his three murder charges was pending based on the outcome of his federal trial. The judge declared that if he did not receive the death penalty at the federal trial, then he would have to return to Kootenay County Court for another case to decide if he should receive the death penalty there. Over three years later, after his federal charges were already complete, Joseph was sentenced to an additional three life sentences by Kootenay County Court. As part of the investigation, Joseph also agreed to cooperate with investigators and give them passwords leading to his encrypted files on his computer. On January 18, 2007, Joseph was then indicted by a federal grand jury on 10 counts of kidnapping, kidnapping resulting in death, aggravated sexual abuse of a minor, and sexual exploitation of a child resulting in death. He also faced charges related to other crimes like illegal firearms possession and vehicle theft. This trial also had postponements, and on December 3, 2007, Joseph pled guilty to all ten charges being placed against him. One condition of the agreement was that Shasta would not have to testify in the trial, but other agreements of the plea deal were not released due to a gag order. 
During the jury selection of his sentencing trial, however, Joseph dismissed his attorneys and chose to represent himself exclusively. His attorneys tried to reject this, saying to the court that he was not competent enough to do so, and they requested a formal hearing on the issue. A district court ordered an evaluation to determine Joseph's level of confidence, and accepted the evaluator's conclusion that he was in fact competent enough to proceed without counsel, and accepted the evaluator's conclusion that he was in fact competent enough to proceed without counsel and continue as his own attorney. On August 27, 2008, after many hours of deliberation, the jury finally recommended the death penalty, and the judge shortly after imposed three death sentences for kidnapping, sexual exploitation of a child, and use of a firearm in a violent crime. All of these charges were directly related to Dylan Groen. On November 3rd of that year, Joseph was sentenced to an additional three consecutive life terms without parole for the kidnapping and sexual abuse of Shasta. After this, Joseph's standby counsel filed an appeal, but Joseph wrote to the court informing them that this was granted against his wishes. A federal judge ruled that he was mentally competent, and when he decided to represent himself, he gave up his right to appeal his death sentence. Psychiatrists working with the prosecution diagnosed Joseph with pedophilia, sadistic personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder, and narcissistic tendencies. However, even with all of these diagnoses, he was still found to be legally sane and responsible for his actions. On January 18, 2007, the same day Joseph was indicted in federal court, officials from Riverside County announced that he was being charged with Anthony Martinez's murder. However, he was not extradited to California until January of 2009, five months after being sentenced to death by a federal court. Joseph again pleaded guilty, taking responsibility for Anthony's murder on March 15, 2011, and in April was sentenced to two more life terms in prison. As part of the plea deal, he removed his right to the possibility of parole or appeal, although Joseph could have faced an entirely separate death sentence. In relation to Anthony's case, this was waived by a district attorney after stating that he had consulted with Anthony's family who wanted closure in the case, and that the federal prison would ultimately take his life before California would. Prior to his arrest, Joseph also maintained a personal website titled The Fifth Nail. The inspiration from this is apparently based on the four nails used to pierce the body of Jesus Christ during his crucifixion, and that a fifth nail was taken away and hidden by the Romans. This gory website depicted Joseph's day-to-day -day life as a convicted sex offender. He publicly denied being a pedophile despite raping and molesting multiple children throughout his life. He also claimed to have been sexually abused as a child. He continued posting online after being imprisoned where he would share content under the name Silenced. He also posted letters from himself on his own behalf. Most public defenders from Kootenay County declined the possibility that Joseph could have been blogging from his prison. After all, inmates didn't have access to the internet. Any and all outgoing letters are scanned for contraband, although they're not read word for word. Most people who read this blog did believe that it was Joseph posting from inside his jail cell. It's something we'll never know for sure. In March of 2021, Joseph was announced to have a chronic health condition. He had been diagnosed about six months prior with glioblastoma, a rapidly growing aggressive malignant brain tumor. He had stage 4 brain cancer. 
Joseph was offered treatment but refused both chemotherapy and radiation. He died on March 28, 2021. He was 58 years old. Joseph Edward Duncan was a depraved person who couldn't stop himself from harming people, especially children. He wanted to blame child abuse for his evil deeds, but even if those claims are true, it doesn't excuse his actions. He still chose a path that led to him becoming a horrible monster. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can also check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our new merch at Teespring. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.